You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so in the movie The Greatest Showman, we meet the character P.T. Barnum, played by Hugh Jackman. And all throughout the movie, he's, we find that he's searching for meaning and he's searching for purpose. He's looking for approval by others, yes, but as the movie goes on, we realize that he's actually looking just for approval in and of himself. And in the movie, he becomes enthralled with this female singer who seemingly has everything that he desires. She's loved by all. She's beautiful, she's wealthy, and she's amazing at what she does. And at one point, he's watching her perform, and as he gazes at her, you see that he's not just captivated by her performance, but he's captivated by her. He sees the life that he most deeply desires on display before him, and, and, and he's captivated by the entirety of it. But the irony is that in his captivation, we find he's completely deaf to the words that she's actually singing. All the shine of a thousand spotlights. All the stars we steal from the night sky, they'll never be enough. They'll never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world and it'll never be enough. 
It'll never be enough. And here lies the point of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've been with us this last couple weeks, then you know that we've just begun our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we've said thus far is that the overarching message of Ecclesiastes was found last week in our passage that we looked at in chapter 1, verse 14, where the preacher writes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. And so what we've said is that the preacher is trying to tell us something that even an honest atheist should be able to agree with. Life under the sun is pointless. If there is no God, if what the whole of Scripture testifies to is not true, then eventually you're just going to die and be forgotten. And you may cringe and rebut at that just a little bit, but you hear me out. You probably don't even know your grandfather's grandfather's name. How much more are the pages of history going to forget you? See, in this book, the preacher's trying to show us, I don't care how good or bad you are. I don't care what good you do or leave undone. I don't care about your power or your poverty. Eventually, the pages of history are going to forget you. If you live your life for what can be gained under the sun, everything is meaningless. And this week, the basic point of what the preacher is trying to show us is that a life lived chasing after joy and pleasure and happiness here under the sun is a life lived chasing after the wind. Last week was about how stacking up PhDs is vanity, that in much knowledge and much wisdom comes much vexation and sorrow. But this week, it's about our experiences. Those two are meaningless. But hear this, a lot of people tend to think that the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of pessimistic. But I, I promise you that it's not. Today, the preacher's trying to show us that living a life perfectly designed around your pleasures and preferences here under the sun is a life of pointless vanity. It's meaningless. It's vapor. And that is true, but I promise it's not pessimism. What he's trying to push us to see is for us to chase a life of meaning that exists beyond the sun. Meaning, and this is my main point, meaning is not here under the sun. It is with the one who presides over it. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me in verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. See, basically verse one is a summary statement of all 11 verses in our text today. He tells us what he's going to do. He's going to perform another test upon himself. And he tells us how he's going to conduct that test. He says, I'm going to give myself over to pleasure. And he tells us the outcome of the test is going to be vanity like all the rest. And so this sentence kind of serves as like an abstract to a research paper. It's a self-contained, concise summary of what the rest of the paper is going to tell us in detail. But to begin to understand the details of the rest of the passage and the full weight of what the preacher is trying to communicate to us today, we have to unpack a few words that he uses here at the outset. First, he says, my heart. He says, I, I said, in my heart. Right here, we see that he's talking to himself. In the Bible, the heart is often depicted as the center of oneself. It's not just the center of the emotions, but it's the, it's the inner man, it's the inner human, it's the center of the will, of the mind, of the physical self, it's all of us. For instance, in Genesis chapter 6, just before the flood account, the Bible says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. See, God looked upon humanity and saw that at the center of who we are, the very core of our entire selves, was wicked and evil and rotten. And that fact grieved him to his heart. It's the same word to the very center of himself. It grieved him all the way to his core. And so, the, so what, the, uh, what the preacher is doing is he's basically letting the very core of himself know what type of test is about to be performed. He's getting consent and buy-in from his entire self. It's similar to a doctor uh, consulting you during a pre-op appointment. He's letting you know everything that you're in for. And that's what the preacher's doing. He's telling himself, I'm going to test you with pleasure. I'm going to test the whole you with pleasure and see if maybe there's just some ounce of meaning here. And that leads us to the other word that we really need to understand if we're going to unpack this passage rightly, and that's pleasure. See, the English word pleasure is actually a bit of an unhelpful translation for us because the word pleasure to many of us, it kind of connotates like naughty things that we know that we're not supposed to enjoy, but we kind of do and we can't help it. Older translations are going to translate it mirth, but probably for most of us, that's an even less helpful word. Um, But really what the Hebrew word is trying to convey is everything that goes into pleasure. Right? He's trying to get across joy and gladness and amusement and merriment and cheerfulness. And remember, he's talking to his heart, so he's, he's not to, this is not a narrow category. He's going to test his whole self, his physical, his mental, his emotional, with every kind of pleasure. And so he says, I'm not going to withhold any joys from you. I'm not going to withhold any joys from myself, and we'll see if there's even one way that this thing has meaning It's like when Iron Man looks over to Doctor Strange in Endgame and he's just looking for him to hold up that number one. Just is this the one instance in which there's meaning here that this thing can shake out for the good? And remember, while it may not be Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes, we've said that much, the the preacher wants us to have a Solomonic-like king in mind. As we saw last week, Solomon was known for his wisdom So much so that people would come from all over the known world just to hear his judgments. But Solomon was also known for his possessions and his power. In 2 Chronicles 1, right after David has died, and Solomon has prayed to God for wisdom to govern his people well, God grants his request for wisdom, but he also says, I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such that none of the kings who were before you and none after you shall have the like. The author here wants us to envision a man with unhindered access to every resource imaginable to carry out this test. And he's using Solomon as an example on purpose so that you and I cannot look at this and say, if I just had more money, then I'd be okay. If I just had more power, if I just got to call some of the shots from time to time, then I'd be all right. Then I'd have the meaning and fulfillment I'm looking for. No, he's saying this is the man who had it all and he still couldn't find it. It would still not be enough and you'd still find yourself just chasing after the wind. But let's look at the things that he tests himself. And that takes up the bulk of our passage, verses two through eight. And we'll see how these things kind of apply to us. 
And there's a lot of pleasures here, so we can break them down into three general categories as we work through them. And the first category is futile pleasures, and we find those in in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, we see him test himself with laughter. But he quickly concludes that this futile pleasure is actually useless. He sees that he can change his emotional state for a while, maybe for that hour that he watches the latest stand-up comedian on Netflix. But when the hour's done, he realizes cortisol levels begins to rise again, and he's right back where he started. And so this one didn't last. And so he determines laughter wasn't it. And in verse 3, we see the Netflix special is now over, and he turns it off, and he goes to the top cabinet above the fridge, and he turns to the bottle. He says, I'm just going to drink. But he says, no, 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 this is for research purposes. This is purely academic, of course. Right? He says, I'm not just drinking to drink. I'm trying to figure something out here. I'm doing my research. My wisdom is behind this. But he drinks to intoxication to see if when, maybe when his inhibitions are lowered a little bit, when he engages in some folly, maybe then he'll find some lasting joy and cheer that drags him to meaning but he says it's not here either. And so maybe the futile pleasures of laughter and drink weren't it. And he says, what if I do an opposites thing and I start to take things really seriously? And so we get the second category of creative pleasures in verses four through six. And here we see he puts his head down and he starts to make great works. He begins to build. He starts with construction and he builds houses. Then he makes gardens and he he makes parks and he plants all these trees and he he digs the irrigation system himself just to water it. But ultimately, he finds when he exerts all of his creative power, he still doesn't find the meaning he's looking for. He can't find the lasting joy that he wants in his creativity. And so then we we get the, the, the category that we can call power pleasures in verses seven and eight. Here we see him exerting his authority over his people and his possessions. He buys people as slaves for his house. And he then degrades them by lumping them in with all the possessions of animals that he owns. Showing that not only did he have enough power to buy lots of things, but he had enough power to treat people as things. He stored up wealth in such abundance that he had more money than entire kingdoms. He was on Broadway every night enjoying the best of entertainment in the world, and his mistresses had mistresses. But the meaning wasn't here either. Commentator Derek Kidner says in all of these pleasures, what he's doing is he's making for himself a literal paradise. Almost as if to say, if I can create the perfect conditions, the most beautiful atmosphere, if I can make a utopia out of my life, then maybe I'll find some lasting joy and meaning that I'm searching for. But this is the whole point. Our appetites can consume a true paradise set to all of our own specifications. And like the ocean in chapter one with all the rivers filling it, it will still never be full. He's driving all of the rivers of creation to himself, right? Did you see that? In verse two, he says, he drinks to cheer my body. In verse four, he says, I planted vineyards for myself. In verse five, I made myself gardens and parks. In verse six, I made myself pools. In verse seven, slaves were born in my house. In verse eight, I gathered for myself silver and gold. 
He's taking all of these rivers of pleasure and directing them to the ocean of him, and he realizes he is still never full. And listen, one of the things that I find most interesting about this passage, and we don't have a lot of time to get into it today, but one of the things I find most interesting is that none of these pleasures that he indulges in are categorically bad, right? Laughter's not bad. Wine is not bad. Work is not bad. Creativity is not bad. Authority, entertainment, sex, these are not bad things. These are good things that God has given to us to be enjoyed in the right way. But the preacher is showing us that it's when we take a good thing and use it in ways it wasn't created for that we get issues. It's like when I'm too lazy to walk back out to my garage and I use the back end of a screwdriver to pound in a nail. It's just usually not going to turn out right. God designed his creation to be enjoyed, but when we make a good thing, an ultimate thing, that good thing becomes an idol. And what the preacher is trying to show us here is that idols do not work. God created all of these things to be enjoyed, but not to be our joy. They can't bear the weight of that. He's learning through experiment what we can all agree with through experience. These things aren't meant to bear the weight of our meaning. And we know this. I don't even have to teach it to you. He's learning that the joy and pleasure that comes from them is something that can't be stored up. It doesn't last. Right? The good time is gone in just about as much time as it takes you to realize it was there to begin with. I think this is depicted really well in the last episode of The Office. When Andy says, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. He's saying, by the time I realize I'm having the best time of my life, it's already over. It's not something I can save for later. See, pleasure experiences are not like putting money into your IRA. We can't take a portion of every pleasurable experience and let the market grow it over time so that eventually we can retire on the wealth of our saved experience, of our saved meaning. That's why we have to go to the next experience. That's why we have to chase and indulge again. Because the meaning and joy, they're bound to the activity. It's why people don't just enjoy a drink, they get drunk. And they do it over and over again. It's why people overstretch themselves at work, accomplishing more and more, always looking for that promotion, even when it's the detriment to their family and themselves. And they know this. It's why people are willing to trample on others, other people made in God's image, just to earn one more dollar. It's because we realize pleasure cannot be stored. It's only circumstantial, so we have to chase the circumstances that give us this facade of meaning. And otherwise, we know, we all know this, that we'd have to face the fact that it's all meaningless. See, one of the questions that I've heard people ask often over the years when making decisions, or or questions like this, is like, does it bring you joy? Do you get joy out of this? Is this life-giving? Does this give me meaning? Does this give me purpose? See, with this question, we take the decisions of life and we primarily run them through the grid of me. 
right? And what we've said is that this word pleasure, it's joy, it's cheerfulness, it's merriment. And so what we're doing with this question is we're doing the same thing the preacher's doing here. We're pointing the rivers of creation back to us. I'm thinking about switching jobs because this one just doesn't give me joy anymore. But what if the fundamental purpose of your work isn't to give you joy? What if that's not its fundamental purpose? I don't know if I can have her in my life anymore because she's just so draining. It's life-taking. Well, maybe it's life-taking to you, but what if the relationship is life-giving to her? I don't think I should serve the church in this way anymore because I feel like I'm always doing for others. I need some time for things to just be done to me. But what if the point of our service is not to get life from others, but to give our lives for the sake of others? See, consciously or subconsciously, we run everything through this grid. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there aren't times and seasons in life to pick things up and to lay them down. Wait until we get to chapter three for that. I'm just questioning whether or not this, is, this should be the primary question that we resort to when we make decisions. But I'm not surprised we make decisions like this. And it's because we've been trained to believe that this is the highest good of our lives, to enjoy myself by creating a life focused on the things that I desire. That's what we've been trained to believe. That's our highest end. It's baked into the fabric of our culture from our school curriculum to the Disney movie that is going to come out next week. Every one of them is telling us that this is your highest gain. We're brought up in a culture that says, you do you. Or you can be anything that you want to be. Just chase your dreams. Just go after it. If you like it, then go for it. We're taught that to think that if a thing doesn't feel good to us, then it must not be good for us. And we see that as our right to cultivate a life of meaning and joy around our own personal pleasures. But what the preacher is finding out is is what the culture doesn't tell you. Pleasure and meaning are not the same thing. You can't combine the two necessarily. See, the preacher, he went all in on this stuff in ways that we will never be able to even imagine. Verse 9, he says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Listen, here's the crazy part, and, and it's something that maybe you wouldn't expect your pastor to tell you, but Ecclesiastes is full of things that we might not expect God to tell us, so here it is. If you chase after greatness, and if you chase after power, and if you chase after pleasures in this world under the sun, you will find it. It's out there. I'm not going to lie to you. He did get pleasures from his activity. He became greater than all the rest. And in verse 10, he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was the reward for my toil. The text is honest with us. There is pleasure to be found in seeking pleasure. The pleasure of the, the activity is the reward itself. But the preacher is also honest with us enough to let us know that it is not going to last. You need to hear the words of the preacher. All of it is vanity and striving after the wind. There's pleasure in it, I won't lie to you, but it's vain pleasure. We need to be honest with ourselves like the preacher is here. If you're going to give yourself over to these things, then at least have the integrity like the preacher does here. Uh, If you're going to make them ultimate in your life, then at least just 
acknowledge that they're meaningless. That they're not going to do for you what you want them to do for you. See, one theologian puts it like this. He says, this text presents a formidable challenge to one of the most basic tenets of capitalism. That growing consumption more or less automatically leads to more happiness. See, we're taught to believe that if we enjoy something, then the more that we get of it, the more likely we are to live fulfilled lives. See, but look, this line of thinking leads the the preacher to an important end. In verse 11, the preacher says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended while doing it. See, that's the preacher's goal. He's not just asking us to admit that this is all toil. That only gets us halfway. If you've gotten that far, that's good, but it's only halfway. He's asking us to consider the toil. Do you ever take time to just step back and consider the things that you do? Do you step back and consider why you do them? Do you consider the circumstances that lead you to do these things? Do you consider if the pleasures and joys aren't just slowly destroying you? See, we look to the circumstances of this life to give us meaning and joy when what we ought to be doing is looking to the giver of life who gives us joy and meaning despite our circumstances. The preacher is honest with us. Everything done under the sun is vanity and chasing after the wind. So we need to anchor ourselves to the one who presides over the sun. This is what the preacher is trying to show us. This is where he's trying to lead us. Right, the Westminster Divines and the Westminster Larger Catechism, they begin by essentially asking in their first question, what are we made for? What is our ultimate goal? What is our ultimate end? What is our meaning in life? And the response is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Meaning is found in joy. It is found in pleasure, but it's not joy and pleasure under the sun. We have to cast our eyes above it. See, the message of the world, it's indulge yourself. It's follow your heart. You do the thing that feels best to you because it tells us what's true, uh, where we can get true meaning and pleasure is in our joy. It's in our our pleasure. It's in our uh, uh, cheerfulness. But the message of Christ is deny yourself and follow me. The prophet Jeremiah writes that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? We can't trust our hearts to lead us correctly. We can't follow our lusts and our desires and expect them to lead us to lasting meaning and joy. Remember Genesis 6 earlier, God looked upon the heart of men and he saw that it was only evil continually. We can't trust it, but Jesus says, come to me and I'll take that heart of stone and I'll give you a new heart of flesh. See, in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, what's happening is Satan is basically saying, I can give you the kingdom without the cross. I can give you the joy and you won't have to endure the hardship. I can cultivate the circumstances of your life so that you can have the paradise without the pain. And that's what we're taught. That's what we believe. We've bought that lie. We've bought the lie of the world. We've bought the lie of Satan that we can consume these things and find meaning. But the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy tied to shame, tied to sorrow, tied to pain. What joy is this? 
It's the joy of pleasing the Father. It's the joy of redeeming his bride. It's the joy of the consummation of all things. And because of that, because Jesus died for our sin, because he rose on the third day and he is seated right now victoriously at the right hand of God the Father on high, we don't have to try to cultivate for ourselves a life of joy and meaning anymore. Through faith in his finished work, joy and pleasure are now a gift that come to us, hear this, despite our circumstances. We can say with the Apostle James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is saying for the Christian, even the trials, even the pains, even the sorrows and the hardships of this life are opportunities for joy because our meaning is not tied to any of them. It's why Paul can write, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He doesn't mean I can win the game through Christ who strengthens me. And he doesn't mean I can get the job through Christ who strengthens me. That's a soft prosperity gospel. That puts his meaning and joy in the world. No, he means he can be content with whatever God gives to him. He can enjoy the goodness of creation rightly because he's not constrained to the goodness of the experiences themselves. Right? Unlike P.T. Barnum at the beginning, never content but only wants more and he's never satisfied and he, it's never going to be enough and he doesn't realize it. For Paul, whether he has a lot or a little, whether he has power or poverty, whether it's sickness or in health, he can be content because his joy and meaning are situated with Christ. His meaning isn't in creation, but it's found in the creator. Friends, and this is available to us as well. See, through the gospel, we don't have to try to find pleasure simply contained to the experiences of this life between the womb and the tomb. Because by faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, our true meaning is seated with him in heaven on the other side of it. This is otherworldly pleasure. This is lasting pleasure. This is the pleasure that you're looking for. This is pleasure that has sunk down deep into the deepest parts of your hearts, to the very core of your humanity, and changes the way your whole life is understood. This is meaning and pleasure anchored not under the sun, but beyond it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we...